0: with the
1: trucker cap you look like a real podcaster
0: yeah i know uh i feel like seeing this in my like in my screen too uh-huh. with the the panel wall and like the dark brown couch. <laughs> this definitely looks I've, I feel like I've got more of a Joe Rogan yeah aesthetic going on right oh,
1: now. Oh 100%. Or like if you were in um the the studio of oh who is the guy who did private parts? Um, oh. <laughs> uh fuck what was it? Howard name? Stern? What's, Howard Stern studio, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You totally have that aesthetic right now.
0: Yeah. Clearly, I just need to cripple myself more, and it'll be good for the podcast.
1: Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm hoping that if your knees completely give out, oh, we can just monetize this thing, and I'll pay you to
0: edit. I'm not going to have I much of a choice. Fun, I can just do
1: the <laughs> research part.
0: Yeah, I'm not going to have much of a choice at that point, probably. <laughs>
1: yeah, man, well, this is all part of my nefarious plan, actually.
0: Oh, uh, you're the you're the one that came and gave me uh-huh. these awful, awful knees?
1: Yeah. Well, that and also to let capitalism break you until I could, you know, use that to to further the podcast and our own our own prestige.
0: Well, I got to say I was really hoping it was going to take a few more years than this. Yeah. So. <laughs> so
1: it's good news.
0: <laughs> yeah, I suppose, you know. They say uh, the waiting's the hardest part. Well. I think that Tom Petty's kind of an asshole right now.
1: Well, I think, actually, you know, in my my way of kind of tying our openers in with our topics, I think this is an apropos opener, given the topic that we're going to discuss today. This is Compost Bin of History, the podcast where we stick our pitchforks into old ideas and mix them around with the new ones for a nice, even decay of all that organic matter. And cartilaginous tissue as well.
0: And I will be holding my pitchfork, uh, in spirit because I'm not allowed to lift, push or pull. <laughs> so, so
1: composters out there, go ahead and, uh, and pitchfork one for Jared tonight. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Jared famously, it's been noted that you are both the co-host of our podcast and our number one fan.
0: I believe I've read that and in- one or two publications.
1: That was in Variety, actually. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> in, our, in our profile in Variety magazine. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, part of our gimmick is that I try to find things that, you know, you will find interesting and get to tell you about them so I can get your spicy takes. You know, <laughs> all those nice nuggets of wisdom. As wow. you know, we're both kind of working class, and I'm a little bit more of the educated class, but we're both pretty much dirt
0: right pretty much uh don't do labor kids it's bad for you yeah avoid it at all cost physical labor at least
1: well i have a humdinger for you today as we embark on yet another historical reading series
0: my favorite kind yeah do you remember our last reading series boy (laughs) i can make something up but no i don't think i do Well, it was when we read
1: Leon Trotsky's On National Socialism.
0: Oh, okay. Yep, I remember that.
1: Which was a really fun episode. It's done pretty well, play-wise. And likewise, you know, it's kind of easier for me to prepare because I just have to find an interesting article to read to you and we can kind of talk about it, right? Yeah. So, you know, basically, whereas we normally are reading awful accounts from, like, neo-Confederates about, you know, old history the historical reading series is when we actually get to read things that are like good from people who we generally agree with about things. Right. If you and, say so, yes. <laughs> well, um, I, i I found this really good article about recent history, you know, post Trotsky history that when I read it, I knew that I had to share it with you in our podcast format so that we could discuss it a little bit more.
0: Well, all right. Lay it on me.
1: This is from the most recent issue of Jacobin Magazine, and it's titled An Army of Pete Buttigiegs.
0: That sounds terrifying.
1: By Nicole Ashoff. And I don't know if I pronounced her name correctly. It's A-S-C-H-O-F-F. And I'll put a link to this article in the description of the podcast so that all of our listeners can cite it more easily in their term papers. And basically, this article is the history of the McKinsey Corporation. And I think it highlights some of the issues that you and I might have with the powerful classes, the better classes, here in the old U.S. of A.
0: Yeah, problems we have, but Jim Bowie knew that they were pretty good people.
1: <laughs> well, especially our issues with one Pete Edge Edge whom we critic whom we criticized most recently on our last show when i i think we were comparing um the the fact that you know the other jim bowie the jim bowie of mixed race origins owned slaves himself and you were like you know (laughs) he's he's like kind of like how um oh pete buddha judge of his time in the sense that you know i think you said even my gay friend is an imperialist or something like that right (laughs)
0: I mean, he did work for McKinsey, so.
1: Well, that's what we're going to talk about is, you know, why exactly is this not so great? I've and, been,
0: like, far too depressed to really be paying attention to the Israel-Palestine stuff in the news right now. Yeah. But uh, has Pete Buttigieg been talking about that at all publicly?
1: Um. Well, if he has, I certainly haven't heard about it. He talks a lot recently about racial equity here at home. In fact, uh, and I think every speech that he's made as secretary of transportation, he's mentioned racial equity, but I don't, I don't know if that extends to um, racial equity between Palestinians and Israelis. I would be surprised. I'll say, would you be surprised?
0: (laughs) I'd be very surprised. Uh, (laughs) So I just, I just really love that uh, interview that I can't even remember some guy, this awesome interview did with him where he's just like grilling him about fixing grain prices through McKinsey.
1: You've been on the front lines of corporate downsizing. You've been on the front lines of corporate price fixing. You've been on the front lines
0: of our our misadventures of
1: our misadventures in foreign policy. You've had direct experience of many of the things that make a lot of young people very angry about the way that this country uh, is operating right now. You don't seem to embody that anger.
0: So the proposition that I've been on the front lines of corporate price fixing is just to get that out of the way. You worked um, for a company that was fixing bread prices. Uh, no, I worked for a consulting company that had a client that may have been involved in fixing, or but was apparently in a scandal. I was not aware of the Canadian uh, bread pricing scandal until last night. Right. <laughs> yeah,
1: so... I guess, you know, because I think Buddha Judge is a popular figure amongst liberals generally, maybe it would behoove us to kind of lay out some of our uh, disagreements, some of our uh, quibbles, and also get to talk a little bit about like the history of this McKinsey Corporation. Because since, you know, World War II, they've kind of been part and parcel of a lot of the major developments of both you know the american economy and global capitalism so and i know that you know yeah you've been dealing with some cartilage issues and some some knee stuff so i thought maybe this would be kind of an interesting thing to kind of draw you back into the political circus and take your mind off of things but you mentioned you mentioned palestine i think that we'll talk more about settler colonialism and draw some parallels when we get back to jim bowie on our next episode Because certainly there are lots of parallels to be drawn there.
0: Yeah, McKinsey's whole thing is like uh, economic colonialism, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I would say economic imperialism in the sense that it's both abroad and at home. But um, let's, let's dig in. So before we get going on McKinsey, because really that article is all about McKinsey, not really about Mayor Pete. I thought we'd start off with a little Mayor Pete fact box. Does that sound good?
0: Yes, I need to know everything possible about <laughs> Mr. Pete or Mayor, well, Mayor Pete.
1: I'm going to try not to go into that much detail because I really want you know to keep this episode more focused on this article by Nicole Ashoff, which I, I think is excellent writing because it really honors the old axiom of to use your, use your writing to show, not to tell. And um, it, it's just very well-crafted
0: so this is this is like the opposite of reading the New York Times, then
1: yeah, a hundred percent but this is this is my assembly of Wikipedia facts about Mayor Pete before we get going on that Peter Paul Montgomery Buttigieg was born the nineteenth of january nineteen eighty two in South Bend, Indiana, and uh his father there was a professor of literature at Notre Dame. Have you ever heard of this this uh this college, Notre Dame, Jared.
0: Notre Dame, huh?
1: Notre not in their church It's got a weird name. Recently, uh, made. no, that was the that was the cathedral in France. This was their Jesuit oh, institution. This is, this is
0: the Hunchback place, though.
1: This is the one with the football team.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, football. like um, yeah, college with the football. round ball, black and white. People,
1: <laughs> no uh, no no this is the other Brazil's this is the really good skin. at it this is the, oh, the pigskin okay. team yeah
0: oh yeah. all right yeah yeah I I must have taken too many hits to the head playing that sport I, just, <laughs> I don't remember it
1: well uh this is actually a pretty prestigious American institution um it's a private school you know people are pay they, a lot of money to go there
0: are they good again now
1: uh I mean, I don't think they've been good for 20 years and every time they've been in the playoffs, it's been purely because of hype. And sure enough, they lose pretty quickly.
0: But they're not like a garbage fire like they were back when I kind of still used to pay attention to college football.
1: I don't think they're a garbage fire. But I I do think that the fact that Mayor Pete's dad was like a professor emeritus of literature there at this really prestigious university kind of tells you something about his social background and upbringing, right? Certainly.
0: Even in the eighties, professors were paid pretty well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think this says something about Mayor Pete. And sure enough, uh, he was valedictorian of his high school class. Is that a surprise?
0: Uh I don't think so. I mean yeah, I wouldn't I, <laughs> I wouldn't imagine it would be that tough to do that in South Bend, Indiana. Like mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um at the high school I went to, if I would have applied myself, I probably could have gotten it. Right. I well, and, I, and you I got know, within, his like sniffing distance of it without trying, basically in high right. school.
1: Well, and you know, his dad was like breathing down his neck, like anytime he wrote something. Right.
0: I would imagine so. And just you know, the type of parents you're going to have if one of them is a college professor, probably like you know, supportive. I mean, yeah, you know, that type of thing.
1: Hoity-toity, um, a little
0: bit. Toity toity It's uh, not probably not like a crazy broken home. Hmm. Yeah. You know. Well,
1: um, Mayor Pete actually won a big contest his senior year of high school. He won the John F. Kennedy Profiles in Courage essay contest. And um, <laughs> you're going to love the subject of his winning essay, Jared.
0: Oh, why? Was it some famous famous socialist that he would later <laughs> undermine?
1: <laughs> <laughs> his His topic was the integrity and courage of Bernie Sanders, one of two independents in the u.s government (laughs) representative government at the time
0: oh yeah well isn't it isn't it nice when people stay true to their values
1: (laughs) (laughs) well uh staying true to his upbringing and his values he went from high school on to harvard university where he majored in history and literature and graduated from there magna cum laude in 2004 and one thing I just can't believe is, like, how young this dude is, right? Like, you know, I was in high school in 2004 when he was graduating, you know? Like, you were in high school then. Um, yeah. So, yeah. He graduates uh, Magna Cum Loudly and goes on to Oxford University on a Rhodes Scholarship where he majors in philosophy politics and economics and gets another degree in 2007 from Oxford just normal college stuff you know like you do just go to go to England to another prestigious school after attending the most prestigious school in America and interestingly in between he worked on John Kerry's campaign as a policy and research specialist you know how he, you know, when John Kerry famously won the two, the 2004 election.
0: Well, he won the primary.
1: <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's after he graduates graduates from Oxford that McKinsey went on, or that Pete Buttigieg went on to work for McKinsey, where he did lots of things. Jared's already referenced one of them, which was consulting at the Canadian grocery giant Loblaws where, um, and I'm just going to quote Pete Buttigieg here. Okay. Where he was learning about the nature of data by manipulating millions of data points. I could weave stories about possible futures and gather insights on which ideas were good or bad. I could simulate millions of shoppers going up and down the aisles of thousands of stores And in my mind, I pictured their habits shifting as a well-placed price cut subtly changed the perceptions of our clients as a better place to shop. Now, he makes it sound pretty fancy, but that's actually called price fixing. And that's like, you know, a scandal. (laughs) That's like, he's just like
0: filtering, just like (laughs) filtering it through the language of like ideas.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, that's, that's so much of what McKinsey does, right? is they're all about, um, using what's that term for like, you know, fan fancy, uh, speaking. Like, yeah. They're um, like,
0: ob- they're like ostensibly a PR firm, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, ostensibly, but it's sophistry, right? They use sophistry. They use like fanciful language to disguise some pretty ugly stuff. Right. Yeah. And what Pete Buddha just described there was the Canadian bread price fixing scandal, which occurred between 2001 and 2015, and actually, led that that company, Loblaws, to basically like you know have to give every Canadian citizen twenty five dollars and like basically a reparations payment for doing this bad thing over this long period of time, under the advice of people like Pete edge Right.
0: See, I think their biggest mistake though was just being in Canada. I don't see that going down in the U.S. <laughs>
1: <laughs> other uh, other co- entities that. Um, Specifically consulted for at McKenzie included the health insurer Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. No problems there, right? Electronics retailer Best Buy, still number one in electronics retail. Um, we already mentioned Canadian supermarket chain Loblaws. Two nonprofit environmentalist groups, the National Resources Defense Council and the Energy Foundation, which, by the way, I've don't think I would call the Energy Foundation an environmentalist group. That sounds like a coal and natural gas advocacy firm.
0: Uh, Yeah. But if you call it energy, it sounds different. It
1: sounds natural.
0: Yeah. <laughs> isn't the department, um, isn't like the energy department also who controls the nukes?
1: I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> Just a bunch of oh, good and- stuff
0: going on in the, in the energy department.
1: And interestingly, while working for this private corporation, McKinsey & Company, he also consulted for several U.S. government agencies, including the EPA, the Energy Department, the Defense Department, and the Postal Service. But um, he did lots of things at McKinsey. We're going to talk about some of those things a little bit later. But this is the crazy part, okay? Somehow, while working on all of those huge and variable projects for this global consulting firm... The U.S. government, you know, um, retail giants. He's also able to join the U.S. Naval Reserve in 2009. Well, working for McKinsey, and this is this is the craziest thing. He does it through this very unusual route called the Direct Commission Officer Program. Now, you see, normally when you like join the military, you have to do some training and shit, right? Like if you're going in as an enlisted man, you got to do basic, you have to pass tons and tons of physical tests, you know background checks, you have to get yourself clean off of drugs um, speaking from someone else's experience and also uh you know if you're going in, in in the officer corps, that's an even more detailed and rigorous process involving like reserve officer training academy while you're in college or West Point or something like that but I don't know if this has something to do with the fact that he's working at McKinsey, but he was able to just jump all of those different hurdles and basically directly enter as an ensign in naval intelligence in 2009, while also working for this global consulting corporation. And I think that just really speaks to what a you know motivated go-getter this talented young man was. You know,
0: yeah, I'd say that. I'd say that completely explains it
1: making $100,000 a year while working for McKenzie and collecting an officer's commission in the Navy which he was able to join directly with little or no um, training. Just absolutely Some people just have
0: all the ambition.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Just lots lots of energy. What were we fucking doing at 26? You know, like dicking around in grad school, fucking measuring wetlands and shit. Uh,
0: 26... Um you were doing that. I was probably driving a semi somewhere. Yeah. Trying to pay for my college loans.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's just because we weren't as um dedicated. We didn't have the motivation that Mayor Pete did. So um yeah. Just really highlights his, his talent. And unfortunately he left McKenzie in two thousand ten to pursue a career in politics specifically as the state treasurer for Indiana under Mike Pence. And he gets totally creamed in that election, running as a Democrat. Um, But the next year, he's able to get elected as South Bend mayor in 2011 of his hometown, the home of Notre Dame, right? You know, a hometown boy done good. And one of the first things he does as mayor is he covers up um, a recent basically like lynching of a 16-year-old um, black child, uh, Jahaid Vasquez, who it seems was killed in a hate crime. <laughs> but uh, Mayor Pete basically turned down uh, the request of the mother to investigate the slain, saying that he feared potential political risks.
0: Well, you certainly want, wouldn't want political risk because if you're a brand new mayor
1: yeah i mean again you know it's just like um i think (laughs) i i i don't know i mean it's it's kind of shocking um and then one of the next things he did was he kind of well so there was like this whole racial bias thing in the city police force that was kind of a deal at the time where the city like the city's first black police chief was like made aware of basically blatant racism from some of the lower officers and um, people in his employ. So they were trying to record these people being racist. And when Mayor Pete found out about that, he didn't fire the racist cops. He basically just like dismissed um, the people doing the recording. The, the city's first historic you know black police chief. That was the guy who got dismissed because you can't you can't be recording people who work for the city. That's illegal. You can't do totally. private recording without consent.
0: Plus, if, like, a bunch of cops are being racist to, like, the police chief, that might also present some political risks.
1: Oh, you can't. You got to avoid the political risks, especially <laughs> if you're, you know, looking to get right the back back the fuck out of South Bend, Indiana as quickly as yeah. possible. Right. See, he's just
0: nipping that stuff in the bud. How do you think he? Right. How do you think he got to Oxford and wherever else he ended up? Yeah. It what, 28 years at that point?
1: yeah by avoiding potential political risks, right? yeah, just a real talented go getter and um and one other thing he did as the mayor of South Bend is in his like big redevelopment you know scheme you might, you might have heard about this, Jared. they basically had like this plan to either demolish or refurbish a bunch of you know the city's housing, and what do you know that most of the demolition was done in black and minority neighborhoods? And most of the refurbishing was done in, like, predominantly white neighborhoods.
0: Well, I'm sure that's just a coincidence. You know, the white people probably proved that they could keep better care of their stuff.
1: Well, you know, he did a lot as mayor, and certainly some of it was probably good. But um, a lot of it seems kind of unnecessary, and a lot of it's pretty questionable as well. But those were the things that kind of jumped out to me in my cursory review. But by 2016, um, he had already kind of like made a name for himself in the national political scene, and the New York Times was calling him potentially the first gay president. Um, and I didn't mention this, but I think like most people kind of know about Pete Buttigieg is that he's gay, right? Like,
0: say so that Abraham Lincoln was the first gay president.
1: Well, the thing is, is there probably have been quite a few gay presidents,
0: <laughs> or like James Garfield or something,
1: right? But he would be potentially the first openly gay U.S. president.
0: Oh, okay. um,
1: And, you know, what do you know, but, like, Obama likes him. And it seems like he really likes Obama because he does a really good Obama impersonation every time he does public speaking.
0: He really does.
1: You know, uh... He's got it
0: nailed. Sometimes he even gets, like, the, the yeah. hands, the exact hand gesture going.
1: And he does the, the, like, kind of stuttering cadence, too, like Obama does. Uh, uh you know, and. That kind of thing. And um, he's very whimsical when he speaks. Yes, very. One of the most, so I don't think listeners will be surprised that Jared and I both were pretty hard for Bernie Sanders in the 2020 primary. Uh, We both campaigned for him. One of the most perplexing campaigning interactions I had while I was door knocking was I talked to this, um, you know, like middle aged woman who was a registered Democrat. And she was just like, hardcore for mayor pete and i was like well you know like we're trained to do instead of saying no you shouldn't like pete because he's bad we were like um well what do you like about him she could not tell me a single thing that she liked about him policy or you know um goals or progressive wise all she could say was that she likes the way that he speaks and Mm -hmm. and and basically giving me like no point of attack to like you know try and turn anything into you know the more progressive Sanders direction just you know like he presents himself in the way that a president should to her right
0: oh yeah yeah I did a lot of canvassing like in the run-up to the Iowa caucus Mm -hmm. and there was an insane amount of people that said that about that was the thing like if we would talk to a Bernie supporter they would talk about his policies and all that which I mean shouldn't be that Surprising, I guess, since Bernie was kind of the only person hammering on policy at all. Yeah. But specifically for Buttigieg, and I got a lot of Bidens too, where people just were basically just like, I just like the guy. Yeah. You know, I just like the guy and I trust him. He talks good.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I had a, another series of really frustrating interactions with, you know, one of my uh, old high school teachers who really kind of shaped my early political philosophy. But a hundred percent behind Mayor Pete. And he was like, oh, Bernie's my number two. Bernie's my number two. If Pete drops out, I'm a hundred percent for Bernie. But like the incongruity there was like that's a gulf that I can't breach, I guess. Like to me it seems like the the gap between Mayor Pete, who in twenty twenty described himself as a progressive but a supporter of whatever this thing called democratic capitalism is. Uh
0: I'm pretty sure democratic capitalism only exists in like the boardrooms of fortune 500 companies. Yeah. It's just that's the, probably democratic capitalism.
1: Well, and you know, guess who's going to be there? A bunch of fucking McKinsey consultants, right? Oh yeah, definitely. That's democratic capitalism. It's the six people who get to vote on, you know, the, the corporation's futures, you know, like, yeah.
0: well, no wonder he supports it. it right. It was so good to him.
1: Exactly. So, I mean, I, I don't want to editorialize too much before we get into the meat of this article, because I think that, like I said, we should try and show and not tell. But nonetheless, this was a very frustrating experience for both of us as you know, campaigners, because, of course, we remember that um, in Iowa, and this is not what Wikipedia says, but I remember how it went out. Buttigieg narrowly lost Iowa to Sanders, but somehow came away with more delegates.
0: Now, yep. <laughs> Wikipedia will tell
1: you that um, Sanders won, or that Buttigieg won the Iowa caucus, but in terms of the popular vote, that was not the case.
0: Dude, I was on the ground when people were panicking because that um, app that we were supposed to be using <laughs> that was like engineered by people. by Buttigieg the DNC somehow right? <laughs> or something like that. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Apparently, Buttigieg had like some connection to the person that designed it, but. That thing was a steaming pile and yeah. just completely crapped out on caucus night. I thought that mine wasn't working. Cause I was like in a rural area with really bad reception. But I had to travel like 60 miles away from home to go be, um, Oh, I can't remember. It was, I was like a caucus um observer or something like that. Right. And, uh, by the time I got back to Sea City, my f- my phone was just blowing up with everyone saying, like, what is going on? These numbers are not submitting like they're supposed to. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, um, as I said, Buttigieg oh, narrowly lost the Iowa a caucus precinct to captain is what I was called. A precinct captain. Yes. I'll give you a stiff salute to the precinct <laughs> captain.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you. But the reason I had to travel so far out to of town is because they literally couldn't find anybody to do that one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well yeah Buttigieg narrowly lost to Sanders but got more delegates but still um, he kept losing until he dropped out on March 1st and endorsed interestingly not the profile and courage of his high school essay won Bernie Sanders but rather bog standard centrist uh, Joseph Robinette Biden
0: Also a progressive, though. (laughs) Whatever the fuck that means.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it paid off for him because he became um, the secretary of transportation. And now he gets to say a lot of pretty things about racial equity and how, you know, people in the past were a little bit racist in their, you know, like redlining and destruct and, you know, construction of highways and stuff like that.
0: He should know. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, he worked. For he learned that developing South Bend. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> all right. So,
1: uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's the Pete judge fact box. Now let's read about this company that he worked for uh, McKinsey and company. All right, you ready, Jared? You want to get a beer or anything? Gotta...
0: Uh, well, I'm not allowed to drink on my anti-inflammatories. Um Yeah. Yeah, I'll go get, let me go get something to drink if we're going right. to be here for a little bit. Yeah, we'll be here for another hour. Okay, I'm going to hobble up the stairs real quick then. Okay. Can you hear me still? Yep,
1: you're good. Beautiful. I'm back on. I'm back on the bootstrap cool. brewing company.
0: Oh, nice. What do you got this
1: appropriately, time? Appropriately. Appropriately when we're talking about Mayor Pete, who of course pulled himself up by his bootstraps. As we just found out.
0: (laughs) What's your flavor?
1: It's uh, Insane Rush IPA. 7.6%
0: ABV.
1: About where I like it.
0: Ooh. (laughs) Very nice. And I am drinking a Kavita Kombucha Lavender Melon flavor. Oh, perfect. Love a nice booch.
1: All right, uh, should we start this article?
0: Lay it on me. Okay.
1: In 1935, the mammoth retailer Marshall Fields was bleeding cash. And so the company's board of directors decided to bring in a man who had established a name for himself as a corporate makeover guru, James O. McKenzie. Have you heard of Marshall Fields, Jared?
0: Yeah, I mean isn't that what just became Marshalls now or is that something else? Uh that's something else. Marshall oh, Fields okay. was bought
1: out by Macy's in 2000 say, yeah. something.
0: But they were like a giant department store basically like exactly. a JCPenneys or Yeah, they were they started Warworth's. in Chicago.
1: Yeah. And um they hired McKinsey because he was also in Chicago. He was basically just coming from the Chicago School of Business. And, of course, we all are familiar with the Chicago School of Economic Theory, right? And uh, we're going to see how that plays out, you know, in practice in this article. McKenzie, sporting his signature blend of accounting, law, and management expertise, studied Marshall Field's books for a few months and recommended that it liquidate its wholesale division, close its less profitable stores, and cut 1,200 jobs. Eager to make sure the transformation was a success, McKenzie put himself in charge of implementing the changes, a restructuring that came to be known as McKenzie's Purge. It's always
0: a good thing when you use the (laughs) word purge to describe an event.
1: Yeah, you know, at this time, 1935, you had Stalin's Purge in the Soviet Union, and you had McKenzie's Purge at Marshall Field's. Um, and, you know, it's the Great Depression, so you can kind of see how department stores, that kind of service the well-to-do might not be doing so well, right? Like, you know, this stuff makes sense if you're a shareholder in the company, right? But it fucking sucks if you're one of those 1,200 people who got laid off because your store got closed. And the, and the height of the depression, you know?
0: Plus I guess this was in the thirties, so this is before Yeah. This is before like the massive middle class and like people didn't really get credit for buying clothes like they do now, so yes, I would assume right. that yeah, they like much more than like JC Penny's now, they probably much more catered to like the upper classes. Yeah.
1: So, um yeah. Mac himself, as he came to be known this James O. McKenzie guy, didn't survive his first foray into actually running a company. He died in 1937 from pneumonia.
0: Oh, what a loser. <laughs> I know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but the power of the quote-unquote firm, as McKinsey insiders call it, to shape companies and governments has only grown stronger in the nearly 100 years since its founding. Today, McKinsey & Company is a global powerhouse employing 30,000 consultants in 65 countries and boasts alumni in the C-suites, those are the corporate suites, of more than 70 Standard & Poor's 500 companies.
0: Well, I take it back then. He might have perished, but man, his ideas sure (laughs) stuck around.
1: Well, and that gets back to something you were saying, right? When we think of democratic capitalism, it's the you know, McKinsey alumni in the C-suites of 70 S&P 500 companies. You know, um, it McKinsey's clients include nine out of ten of the world's biggest companies, and it has the ear of elected officials, royals, and demagogues the world over. You know, if you were like a conspiracy theorist, you might call this some kind of cabal, right? But of course, no conspiracy theorist would listen to our show.
0: No, no. Definitely. We're certainly not that type of thing.
1: Right. Or should I just knocked over a glass of water? <laughs> the deep state made me do it.
0: Their reach is impressively far. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't knock out my internet connection. <laughs> um,
0: okay. I don't know if you can tell, but mine's fairly choppy here at my mom's house.
1: Uh, we're getting by though. I thought maybe it was the wind over here on my end, but um, okay. McKinsey is best known for helping institutions, from pharmaceutical companies to government agencies, find value, often through cost cuts. Because it's remember, liquidate, close. As Duff McDonald, author of The Firm, The Story of McKinsey and its secret influence on American business contends, McKinsey has been the impetus for more layoffs than any other entity in corporate history. And so they're I think they like
0: the <laughs> they like the super romney then.
1: Yeah, they're the super romney exactly. And you know, I think that that's something that we kind of forget about when we think about like the demise of the American middle class, right? Like, it hasn't all just been offshoring and technology development. It's also, you know, this consultant class that has helped to build up, you know, the influence of the administration and devalue jobs that once, you know, were careers and turn them into minimum wage and part-time and low-cost low labor, right? Like, where did American careers go?
0: <laughs> they were sacrificed for efficiency.
1: Yeah, I mean... For the the efficiency, meaning for, you know, maintaining that profit margin for the people who are making the profits. And I think that's, you know, if I'm going to, you know, just editorialize a little bit, I think that's kind of part and parcel with like, you know, the Chicago theories, right? Is it's all about corporate efficiency, kind of building upon that initial economic theory of earlier thinkers that we talked about in our economics episode, this is kind of like the next stage, moving from the power and, you know, the wealth being in the hands of state actors into corporate actors. The firm is about much more than slashing jobs, however. As C. Wright Mills wrote in The Power Elite, quote, The power elite are not solitary rulers. Advisors and consultants, spokesmen and opinion makers are often the captains of their higher thought and decisions. McKinsey, therefore, is a captain of ideas, inculcating corporations and governments with its vision of how organizations should be run. And that kind of gets at what you were saying about talking about these these ugly things as ideas, right? Like what um, Buttigieg was saying about the price fixing of bread in Canada. He was talking about it in idealized terms, right? Like, oh, we're looking at data and, you know, consumer habits and how we can use price points to manipulate behavior, right? That's that's the idea, the idealization of these corporate practices. The role of ideas in capitalism is often glossed over. The behaviors, strategies, priorities, and assumptions of corporate leaders – are often assumed to be the rational byproducts of profit sinking impulses, the quote, best practices, unquote, arising in response to market signals. There is obviously some truth to this, but institutions, such as corporations and governments, are, for better or worse, also highly influenced by the prevailing capitalist zeitgeist a zeitgeist that McKinsey has played a key role in formulating over the decades.
0: Yeah, if anything, they've just gotten better at it over the over time.
1: Right. Um, and I'll just give a definition of zeitgeist because it's kind of a fun word, right? Um, zeitgeist is a noun. It's the defining spirit or mood of a particular period of history as shown by the ideas and beliefs of the time. So, you know, we're really getting at the zeitgeist of like, you know, Bowie's time period and, you know, talking about land speculation and squatting and stuff like that. McKinsey is shaping the zeitgeist of, you know, the neoliberal capitalism that came about in the 60s, 70s, 80s and continuing today, right? How do people conceptualize, how do these powerful people, right, at the heights of industry and government, conceptualize themselves and their roles in global commerce, that's the zeitgeist that, you know, these people are influencing as their consultants.
0: Yeah. I mean, these things, they're not even really framed as a choice in their opinion. This is just what you do if you want to, if you want to be good at doing business.
1: Yeah. I mean, I always complain about like the Colorado housing market, but you know, the zeitgeist is to frame the fact that a single family home costs $450,000 as just a, you know, phenomenon of the market. Like that's just the economy, you know, it's the economy, stupid, but that housing
0: values will always increase.
1: Well, but that neglects like all of the other data and the Mm -hmm. fact that, you know, this could be a regulated thing that people can actually, you know, have some say in a democratic society about how much home should cost or whether or not people should be able to, you know, have mo- multiple homes or speculate or own homes then rent them out to other people. That all goes off the table when you just present it as, you know, the zeitgeist. This is just the economy. This is just where we're at.
0: Honestly, I think even saying people in that instance obscures what's really going on. Like, I don't yeah. really know if I have that much of a problem with, like, you know, maybe a husband and wife owning three houses and renting a couple out. I think the massive problem is like these investment firms buying up like entire neighborhoods right you know, and just maybe sitting on them or renting them out and having so much power to influence the rent in an area that you know it doesn't have anything to do with the market right at that point but but they'll to, be the to, first people to tell you that it does
1: right exactly because that's the zeitgeist, right they get to conceptualize it as a law of nature given that this is the spirit this is the the defining mood of our period so and you know it's the the reason why that is is largely thanks to mckenzie i'm going to try to stop editorializing so
0: much (laughs) and things like listed or love it right (laughs) oh my god man uh for the first like couple days after i injured myself uh, i was kind of just like stuck on the couch upstairs at my mom's house and the amount of HGTV that I unwittingly watched just <laughs> almost drove me insane. <laughs> I know, uh, like citations needed has done yeah. episodes about those type of shows, but man, it's like, <laughs> it's worse than I remembered. Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, all right, back to the article
0: in the two decades
1: following world war II. Keynesianism and the Cold War were key shapers of corporate identity. Keynesianism being this idea that, you know, big big ticket government spending is a reasonable way to drive economic growth, right? And that was largely the defense industry at that time because of the Cold War. And, you know, we get offshoots like the internet and technology because of that. Corporate executives valued security, predictability, and expanding market share, which they believed were best achieved through lifetime employment, avoiding risky financial ventures, and plowing profits back into brick-and-mortar expansion and acquisition. In these years, U.S. companies grew into massive enterprises, raising questions about how to effectively manage them. And, you know, I think that um, a lot of people can kind of look at their own family history and you know say like oh you know like it was during this time period that my grandparents were able to you know buy a home in the suburbs and you know save up for my parents college education and you know do all these different things because of this zeitgeist of you know stability and employment and and predictability right
0: yeah it's literally why i'm in the house i'm in right now
1: Totally. And, you know, where was all the production of those processes going, right? Um, I think a big portion of it was, like, going into the crippled economies of Europe and, you know, the global south in exchange for, you know, a massive outflow of, you know, talent and raw raw material wealth, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, you send us your lithium and we send you fucking, you know... Alarm clocks and Walkmans and that kind of thing.
0: It's a lot better deal than the places with lithium are getting these days.
1: <laughs> well, it was a better deal for everyone than what we're getting these <laughs> days, right? I mean, well, not the shareholders,
0: though. <laughs> right. <laughs> they actually had to pay like taxes and shit. <laughs> well, good news. McKinsey
1: was there with an organizational model, the decentralized multidivisional form or M form. To help corporations like Chrysler, Raytheon, and General Foods manage their kingdoms—corporations that we love, right? Just boy, right. yeah. <laughs> and I'll just kind of especially point
0: Chrysler, out, like the just the best of all the car companies. <laughs> quality, quality oh, products yeah. there. Have you ever have you ever owned a Chrysler?
1: No, I do. I would never own one. Um, oh God! I my always thought that like Dodge was. was a piece of shit,
0: dude. Like oh yeah my first car was a Dodge it was a massive piece of shit like it should have been a nice car it was like in good shape but it was just such a piece of shit
1: Like so much of the Dodge Ram is just the marketing I feel like behind the <clears throat> the brand of the Ram Oh yeah But this this decentralized model is kind of the M form is like in contrast to the unitary form that corporations used to have where you know you kind of think about it as all the different like Uh, productive bases within a business like uh, especially in a really large corporation where there might be multiple like revenue streams those would all be kind of managed under one entity right the unitary oversight of the corporate head office the m form kind of changed that up and said basically you're just going to split the company into its different divisions right you have you know, these people are doing um, production over here, these people are doing research and development over here, and they have their own leadership that they get to basically act somewhat independently, with only some feedback coming from, you know, a corporate office that is kind of separated from these different departments, which is in the sense, decentralized, right?
0: Well, that definitely make it easier to fire large amounts of people if everybody's kind of atomized anyway, and they don't really see each other, you know?
1: Yeah. This is a way to increase atomization, right. Um, by kind of compartmentalizing people at the same level, but in different groups, right? Like, and it's a way to, you know, move people around if there are issues, right? Like if, you know, Bob is sexually harassing Janice and it's becoming an issue, you don't have to fire Bob. If he's like, you know, bringing in, you know, money, you just move him to a different department, you know? And issue solved, right? Not like Bob's going to keep sexually harassing people or anything. So, you know, I think we kind of see how, where this is going to go, right? Like this is the beginning of the neoliberal turn, like in the 60s and 70s.
0: Oh, in the 60s and 70s? No, they would have just fired Janice.
1: (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) So McKinsey also began exporting its know-how to European firms in this time period. Who McDonald writes were terrified of an American invasion, but desperate to capture their corner of the market. Siemens, Hitachi, the Bank of England, Royal Dutch Shell, and Renault all became "quote unquote" Mackenzieized. I mean, Royal Dutch Shell, just another another great great company. Oh yeah, but.
0: And Ram, they're they're renowned for their vehicles, aren't they?
1: (laughs) And their uh, love of the environment. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, unfortunately, times changed, and as competition increased, and the contradictions of the Bretton Woods model heightened in the 1960s, corporate profits stagnated, and the American conglomerate model became suspect. Uh. Jared, do you know about the Bretton Woods Agreement?
0: Not well enough right this second to explain it. Um, All right. The gold standard? Okay, that's what it was? That's where we moved from gold standard to fiat currency?
1: Well, so Bretton Woods was in 1944, and it was basically like when all the Western powers saw the writing on the wall in World War II and said, here's how we're going to plan the world economy. And they said, you know, the U.S. currency is backed up by gold and Fort Knox, right? And therefore, the U.S. dollar is tied to the to the value of gold and all other, you know, market um, currencies will then be pegged to the U.S. dollar, right? Okay.
0: So that's what gave the U.S. their economic hegemony. Exactly. <clears throat> but
1: the problem was is that, you know, you're still tying it to gold, which Again, is totally arbitrary and not yeah. that useful.
0: Never mind. I'm forgetting our own episodes. Uh, Nixon's the one that got us off gold. Yeah, I exactly. Think, Nixon. I think we've I think we've made that mistake once in the past on one of our episodes.
1: Yeah, Nixon took us out of Bretton Woods and made the U.S. dollar a fiat currency. Right. Okay, that's right. So, um, you know, that's and that's when big companies suddenly seemed plodding and uninspired. Because these conglomerates had kind of like become a little bit uh, overly bulky, right? Like this idea of like keeping people employed for life and paying them generous pensions. Suddenly we're realizing that actually we could be making a lot more money if like we didn't do that stuff. Sounds crazy. Um, And even futurists, like these people were like, you know, sci-fi futurists, but also economists, Like Alvin Toffler and Warren Bennis touted a new vision of the corporation, smaller, lean, flexible, and it was McKinsey that operationalized it, that put it into practice. So, as Lewis Hyman argues in Temp, how American work, American business, and the American dream became temporary— Consultants played a central role in the dramatic corporate restructuring of the 1980s. Specifically, McKinsey's consultants, reports, and books encouraged firms to trim the fat of middle management and replace lifetime employment with outsourcing, project work, and temps. Risk minimization strategies shifted from reducing turnover and reinvesting revenue to cutting jobs Fair. and maximizing shareholder value.
0: Mom said to give me carrots i, know. So I know. <laughs> Thank you, mother. What did you get, Jared? Uh, I got some carrots and a couple of hamburgers and some mustard. Nice, nice. Those carrots are
1: going to sound great on Mike. Give us a crunch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Well, they're just going to sit here while you continue.
1: All right. So instead of defining themselves by their industry, McKinsey encouraged CEOs to identify their goals with profit-making alone. Does any of this ring a bell, Jared, you know, as we kind of think about economic trends
0: of the last 40 years? No, I don't know. I've just been so focused on how well the stock market's doing
1: Yeah. Well, I, again, we kind of look at risk minimization strategies have gone from reducing turnover and reinvesting revenue, which again is, is a reasonable way of minimizing risk. People become really good at their jobs. You know, it's like a lifetime thing. They invest their, their work in, you know, their career and, you know, um, like live close to work and, you know, like build company towns around these big corporations like IBM, and, you know, that the companies that make profits reinvest that to instead actually just outsourcing work that can be outsourced to minimize costs and maximizing shareholder value, which is how, yeah, the you, you know, do well in the stock market, right?
0: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, if you can just outsource all of that stuff to like contractors and everything and you don't have to provide them with any benefits, obviously mm-hmm. you're going to make more money. Right. It's going to be terrible for like pretty much everyone else. But if you're one of those shareholders, you got the golden ticket.
1: Right. Um, Interesting. So somehow cutting the fat never extended to the consultants, though. Isn't that wild? Well, they're the ones telling you how to do
0: all the good stuff.
1: (laughs) Hyman says that by the 1980s, the most powerful American corporations typically had a continual set of consultants advising them on matters of business strategy. Consultants were the business strategists for the corporations instead of the corporation's senior leadership, which I do find kind of amusing. You just think about all these like CEOs and CFOs just like throwing up their hands, being like, what do the consultants say? And they've got like this pack of little Grima worm tongues around them, like whispering in their
0: ears. Certainly. I mean, that's got to take a little bit of the pressure off of those executives too. Right. Because if they do something and it doesn't go 100%. right, they can kind of pass the buck on to, Well, you know, Mr. Wormtongue told me.
1: Right. Well, and you get to, you get to, again, kind of repackage this ugly stuff as ideals and ideas, right? Like we're undergoing corporate restructuring. So unfortunately we have to lay you off. Right. Like, yeah, we have to don't blame us. It's just what we have to do to maintain profitability. And, you know, don't ask me about my, you know, yearly bonus. Right.
0: Yeah. And don't ask us what we're
1: paying those consultants.
0: (laughs) And obviously you were never getting that pension. Come on, man. What are you naive? (laughs) You were in sales for how many years and you believed that?
1: Right. So uh, these days, the capitalist zeitgeist is shifting once again the belief that maximizing shareholder value would bring the greatest rewards for individuals and communities took a beating after the 2008 financial crisis.
0: Historically a great time for communities and just the average person.
1: (laughs) But McKinsey's already ahead of the curve, pivoting to the wonders of data analytics and artificial intelligence, like we heard from Mayor Pete earlier. Its website emphasizes the firm's expertise in quote unquote data translation, helping companies use algorithms and machine learning to boost revenues and growth. And When I hear algorithms, machine learning and data translation, I'm just thinking like when I bullshit corporate speak, I'm like, we need to improve our synergy to get quarterly revenues over our machine learning profit motives, that kind of thing. Like it's just data translation doesn't mean anything.
0: I mean, I'm starting to figure out that artificial intelligence is literally just artificial. It It doesn't doesn't work. It doesn't exist. (laughs) I mean, emphasis on everybody focuses on the intelligence part of that. They're looking at the wrong. (laughs) They're looking at. (laughs) They're looking at the wrong part.
1: Well, I, I, you know, having some background in like uh, geographic information systems, GIS, right? Like data translation just to me means like, oh, I made a pretty map or like this map also has a graph on it or like this map is color coded. Something that people have been doing forever, <laughs> but you just yeah. it's become
0: easier with computers. But it's still super impressive, especially if you're a person with a lot of money.
1: Right. if I mean, that was basically my whole job in like wetland mitigation was like I just make a pretty map with some colors on it that will impress a, a millionaire who doesn't know shit. Right, like these people are too dumb to actually understand what data means just by looking at it and reading the caption. So well, I mean, you that's, just have to color code it for them.
0: That's the thing, though. I mean, they're millionaires. They didn't need they have to learn how to do. Yeah, they yeah. didn't need to know how to do that. Right? Why would they waste their time learning that when they could just pay you barely a living wage to do it for them?
1: Yeah, they can pay Pete Buttigieg to take his magical algorithm. And analyze shopping habits of Canadians, and then you know do a price fixing scheme to uh, you know raise the price of bread. Basically, like yeah, that's why they pay him. That's why he made a hundred thousand dollars that year.
0: Victimless crime, dude. I'm starting to think I should have gotten into <laughs> <do> consulting.
1: <laughs> well, dude, like that was that was like I could have gone into consulting after doing wetland mitigation. But again, you just have to you know be a soulless creep. Like Pete, I'm sorry, I'm editorializing again. <laughs> but i'm sorry any consultant i basically think is a, is a soulless cretin
0: yeah i could see that <laughs> i mean okay who would you have been consulting for even you would have been talking to like pretty much anyone who wanted to destroy a wetland right and you would exactly have been like, yeah all right well you probably don't want to do it to this one because this mm-hmm. is going to be a little harder to justify but right look at these right. ones over here you know
1: yeah, you can pave these wetlands over and pay this bullshit company some insane amount of money, and you know this will maximize your profit values uh, for minimal you know costs, right? And still make the EPA happy in the in the process. Yeah. You know? Or hey, but, you know
0: you're in a, you're in a state that doesn't have very many of these companies. Just open your own company. You can do what yeah. you want, and then you can start having other companies pay you to do the same thing. Right. Boom. Consultantized.
1: (laughs) Well, and as we'll see, you know, none of what they're saying is actually particularly revelatory or insightful. Right. It's just that more rather the person saying it went to Harvard Business School in Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship. And that's why it's valuable advice.
0: Well, it comes from (laughs) somebody that's got very valuable credentials.
1: Yeah. McKinsey is like, I've been watching Nathan for you a little bit lately, which is kind of a fun show that shows great. McKinsey is like, is like the horrible real life analog of that, you know, whereas Nathan Fielder is like this one guy with shitty credentials. McKinsey is like this terrible company that hurts people with awesome credentials.
0: Honestly, Nathan for you turns out that his ideas work more often, probably more often, more often than that. It seems like,
1: yeah, so, back to the article. While McKinsey is often associated with corporations, from the very beginning its advice has been eagerly sought by political leaders. Hmm. I wonder what the like connection between political leaders and corporations could be, Jared. Hmm, that's a vaccine. Probably nothing.
0: Yeah, yeah I don't know.
1: Probably just a coincidence. At the same time that it was helping executives manage multidivisional firms in the 1950s and 60s, it was developing lucrative relationships with government agencies. President Dwight D. Eisenhower, for example, hired the firm in 1952 to advise him on filling executive branch positions. Sorry, I shouldn't have put a question mark there. That was a statement. It advised him on filling executive branch positions. Dozens of government agencies, from the Department of Defense to NASA, hired McKinsey consultants to streamline workflow and develop their organizations. And I'm sure there were no conflicts of interest there.
0: Oh, you are? (laughs) No. Oh.
1: I'm going to skip a little bit, but they also were doing uh, global political work for like Britain and German governments um, during the Cold War. And even uh, for Julius Nyerere, the longtime socialist president of Tanzania, in the early 1970s, Nyerere had a team of McKinsey consultants working for him on developing blueprints for the post-colonial transition of Tanzania from British rule. And again, I'm sure there were no conflicts of interest there. Now, you might be surprised to learn that this business has only gotten bigger as time has gone on jared
0: well i mean they went from (laughs) they went from consulting in like chicago to now tanzania
1: (laughs) yeah all over the world (laughs) Um, today public sector consulting and this is just for public sector right this is just them working with governments today public sector consulting is a nine billion dollar industry in north america McKinsey has raked in $20 million from the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency alone in recent years. Have you heard of this? Um, the acronym is ICE?
0: Are you uh, <laughs> with ICE? <clears throat> yeah, it's uh, that thing we don't have anymore because <laughs> of global warming, right?
1: Um, actually, these are the people who, like, uh, you know... Are, they're like the Patriots who patrol our borders and make sure that drugs don't get into our country unless the CIA is bringing them in, and that illegals don't get into the country because you know they're not people and don't deserve rights and all that good stuff, right?
0: Oh, okay. No, no wonder Obama likes Buttigieg then.
1: Well, actually, um, former President Barack Obama hired McKinsey to help ICE streamline deportations. Isn't that nice? And curiously. Um, his vicious opponent, Donald Trump, kept the company on. Weird. Expanding its role to find ways to cut costs in his crackdown on illegal immigration. Jared, do you want to guess at what their recommendations were for cutting costs for ICE?
0: (laughs) Uh, I don't know how, but somehow separating children from their parents must have cost people less.
1: Well. McKinsey's recommendations for ICE included spending less money on food, medical care, and supervision for detainees. <clears> and you know, when the kids in a cage, you don't got to spend as much money supervising them, right? Like totally, a, it's like that's when a you clear go out way of, to cut costs.
0: It's like when you go to work and leave your dog in the kennel all day.
1: Right. Yes. Except yeah. for like indefinitely. So we might ask ourselves, what is McKinsey's special sauce? Why are companies and countries so eager to call upon it? McDonald says that the firm's success isn't rooted, is not rooted, in the novelty of its ideas and recommendations. Quote, The great open secret of the McKinsey business model, he argues, is that a large part of its, of its success has come by reselling the insights of others. For example, the primary product McKinsey sold for several decades was a customized version of the decentralized, multidivisional organization structure pioneered by the likes of DuPont. They just looked at what other co- companies were doing and said, we'll help your company do it. Shocking. What, what a revelation. So, <laughs>
0: <clears throat> Monkey see, monkey do, man.
1: Right. Instead of surefire plans for success, McKinsey's Prestige burnished by its pipeline to graduates from Harvard Business School and other elite institutions, gives companies cover to implement dramatic restructuring plans. Calling up McKinsey's lets executives off the hook for unpopular decisions, such as IBM's mass layoffs and elimination of lifetime employment, which devastated the surrounding community in upstate New York.
0: Well, yeah, IBM didn't want to do it, but, you know, the consultants no, said they just, have to do it.
1: If they were going to continue to be successful as a company, they had to do it, right? Totally. To be quote unquote, wink wink, successful as a company, which is of course tied to, yeah, their you know, their stock, their stock market value and the success of their shareholders. That's how IBM's success
0: is, is judged. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, all right, but I mean, we were talking about, like, the zeitgeist of business practices and all that stuff. I mean, once once uh, McKinsey gets enough of these companies to do these things, at a certain point, there's, like, a tipping point where now, yeah, you probably actually do have to do this stuff to compete, right? Well, right. Exactly.
1: <clears throat> Interestingly also, um, so McKinsey has actually given a lot of bad advice over the years. In the case we mentioned in Tanzania, for example— Brian Van Arkady cites McKinsey's poorly thought-out external proposals for administrative reform as an important factor in the country's inability to develop a competent bureaucracy.
0: Now, did they do that on purpose, though?
1: Well, it's a good question, right? I mean, when you look at, like, the people who are paying them for their big contracts and what we're going to learn about the company's own investment schemes, it kind of seems like some of this stuff could actually... Be more for um the the personal gain so um and in fact AT&T General Motors and Swiss Air all crashed and burned after hiring the consulting firm and who can forget Enron actually yeah who can forget (laughs) Enron have has anyone forgotten Enron
0: (laughs) probably people that were like too young to yeah like know about it but I'm pretty sure anybody, like, even of our age yeah. or older, if you say Enron, I'm pretty sure everyone at least knows they did something shady.
1: Yeah, go listen to the dollop episode about the about Enron, because I think that does a pretty good job.
0: <laughs> it's wild, man. It.
1: But um, <clears throat> basically, they were like this Texas energy conglomerate, um, mainly dealing in, like, natural gas and petroleum.
0: They opened a new market
1: they opened a new market by selling like fake futures in energy right and yeah. basically got rolling blackouts to happen artificially in California when there was no need for it to like jack up their their profit right i mean well
0: see so you say no need for it but got to make those increased profits
1: <laughs> well um so ceo jeffrey skilling of enron was himself a former McKinsey consultant, and he brought in the consulting firm on an almost continuous basis in the years leading up to the energy company's epic collapse in 2001 and Skilling's own 12-year imprisonment for 19 counts of fraud, insider trading, and criminal conspiracy. Uh, So McKinsey itself denies any wrongdoing in the Enron case. But it's difficult to say what its role was in the scandalous mismanagement and greed displayed by Skilling and his compatriots.
0: Well, crucially, they're probably, like, legally protected from
1: exactly. the results of
0: any of their advisement, right? Because they're just the ones saying you should do this, but I exactly. doubt they have any liability yeah. whatsoever when something, yeah. you know.
1: <clears throat> well, and that's the point, right? So the difficulty... Reading from the article, the difficulty is due in part to McKinsey's intense secrecy about its activities. It is not publicly publicly traded, it doesn't divulge how much its partners earn, and it doesn't even say who its clients are. Clarity only comes when people go digging, and when they do, the results are often unsettling. Uh, So ProPublica went digging. It investigated McKinsey's boast that its, quote, restart, unquote, housing program at Rikers Island had cut violence by 50% at the jail complex. So the reason, of course, they were able to do this is because, you know, the jail is, is a public institution, right? So they are able to get the records. Anthony Shores, Mayor Bill de Blasio's top deputy, hired McKinsey in 2014 following a string of media reports about the brutality of life at Rikers where fights, stabbings and assaults by guards were common. Do we need to say what Rikers Island is? Like it's basically like the New York City jail, right?
0: Uh, it's besides like Leavenworth and stuff like that, isn't it probably the most famous prison? I think so. In it's the pretty US? famous. Yeah. And besides like Alcatraz that doesn't exist? Right.
1: Yeah, well put. De Blasio's top aide hired McKinsey in 2014, following a string of media reports about the brutality of life at Rikers, where fights, stabbings, and assaults by guards were common. New York City paid McKinsey, who had no experience restructuring jails or prisons, $27.5 million over three years to test a new anti-violence strategy. So, again, I'm just like, why would you hire these people? Like, how does this make any sense?
0: Because they get results.
1: I mean, but they're not even about, like, violence reduction. They're about cost cutting, right? So, if the goal is to minimize violence, why would you even look at them?
0: Isn't taxpayer money, like, violence against the citizen?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, to answer my own question, again, it's about, like, pedigree, right? It's because these people have credentials and they need jobs and you want to make sure you're good with them for when they're back in government, right? Like the consultants are going to end up on some fucking CEO boardroom. They're going to end up like, you know, being fucking secretary of transportation, right? And you want to make sure that you did good by them when you were in the position to do so. Nothing shady there, right?
0: Not (laughs) at all, man. Nothing but sunshine.
1: So let's see how they did in that you know violent re- restart on violence strategy. McKinsey claimed its restart program was a great success, of course. But ProPublica's investigation revealed that the improvement stats were a fabrication. McKinsey and prison administrators stacked the quote restart houses with Rikers' least violent prisoners. Moreover, instead of finding ways to reduce skyrocketing violence in the prison, McKinsey encouraged guards to expand the use of tasers, shotguns, and canine patrol dogs.
0: Well that doesn't count as violence though, right? No,
1: no, definitely not. Because, because the violence
0: can only be done by the inmates, right? Right.
1: The violence if it's done by guards is that's a different that's not violence. That's that's um deserved retribution, right?
0: Yeah. Reforming people.
1: But I do think, though, that this is basically just speaks to the way they always do things, which is they hide the bad stats and obfuscate them. And they just restructure the system in a way that makes it more, you know, appeasing to the people at the top where they can say that they've done good things and have, you know, made it more lean and efficient, whereas actually they've just cashed in.
0: Yeah, they're data experts.
1: I mean, it's what Buttigieg was talking about, right?
0: Yeah, isn't that what? Isn't that what data's for though? I mean Oh wow. <laughs> I mean
1: <laughs> that's one I mean, you know, it's like lies damned lies and statistics, right? Like they're they're all about that shit.
0: Yeah. And if you're good enough at that, I mean, it's gonna be really hard for anybody to notice, probably. Yeah. Until years down the road. You've already cut a check and You were the consultant, right? Yeah, and even these even these like expose A pieces. I mean, what do they even do?
1: Well, they haven't dampened, you know, fucking McKinsey's profitability and potential. I mean,
0: they don't threaten their profitability. It doesn't seem like there's any legal repercussions for any of this stuff, really. It's... Right. What do they care? Mm Mm-hmm. You know?
1: All right, continuing from the article. The company doesn't just lie about its efficacy. It also lies about being a, quote, disinterested expert, unquote. It's promised to maintain a strict firewall between the consulting work it does for its clients and the financial returns it gets from investing in those same firms. And you know, if you're looking to maximize profits, that's exactly what you're going to do, right? I mean, like you're going to invest in the good ones. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> yeah. The first time McKinsey breached this firewall was in the 1990s when top McKinsey executives were caught insider trading McKenzie was embarrassed by the scandal and swore future vigilance, but a series of subsequent investigations revealed that conflicts of interest were still par for the course. McKenzie's secret hedge fund appears to be a key player in these cases.
0: Doesn't that just make you like proud when you hear things like secret hedge fund?
1: I wish compost been of history at a secret hedge fund, <laughs> except ours would actually be a hedge. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, well we could we could start our own artificial hedge fund
1: we could just like plant a bunch of elderberries and lilacs out of compost acres and then put up a sign that's like secret hedge fund <laughs> <laughs> like a little piggy bank by it oh, yeah. <laughs> all right all right
0: <laughs> hopefully the elderberries are surviving we've been getting some rain around here
1: oh good i'm glad to hear it
0: <clears throat> the plants are on their own
1: yeah. Well, this you've got them started out on the right foot and now they get, now they just have to be plants, right? Yep. The strong will survive. Unlike <laughs> unlike in the cases that McKin- McKinsey invests in. <laughs> so McKinsey's secret hedge fund appears to be a key player in these cases. McKinsey Investment Office or MIO Partners manages roughly 25 billion dollars for McKinsey employees, alumni and retirees through a series of smaller hedge funds, various shell companies and an offshore location in the English Channel island of Guernsey where it keeps a large part of its holdings. And at this point it's just a hitman plot. I mean this is literally a mission in Hitman. It's <laughs> like you go to the Isle of Guernsey to the secret cabal of like wealthy, you know, power elite
0: The real twist in that game is that McKinsey was an investor in it, so that's why they
1: (laughs) Holy fuck. That's how they came up with that storyline. But yeah, it's just a hitman three plot at this point. Um not much is known about MIO partners and its investments, however. Nor is the relationship between MIO and McKinsey clear. But what is known doesn't look good. Recent revelations show that McKinsey has been double-dipping in its bankruptcy dealings. In in Virginia, a coal company called Alpha Natural Resources, which, by the way, great name for a coal company, Alpha Natural Resources, hired McKinsey to help it generate a bankruptcy restructuring plan to, among other things, figure out how much it would need to pay its secured creditors. The problem is that McKinsey, through its hedge fund, was one of those secured creditors. A conflict of interest great enough that a federal judge ordered a reopening of the case. So basically, this coal company was like, "How much are we going to need to pay the people who we owe money to?" And they were like, "Let's hire McKinsey, who
0: we owe money to, to figure it out." Did the coal company even know that they owed money to them?
1: Uh, it doesn't say, but you mm-hmm. know, I, I I could see I could see it both ways, right? like them not knowing and them knowing yeah. perfectly well.
0: But, I mean, it's pretty common to not really know who all your creditors are too, I think. That's true.
1: Well, th- listen to this one. This is way worse, okay?
0: Mackenzie. De- in any case, McKenzie definitely knew oh, that they yeah. were one of their creditors. Oh, yeah.
1: Um, but then again, McKenzie, because it's a consulting firm, is so decentralized. You know, it. I think you're right. I think some people must have known, but certainly some people working on that did not know, right? because that's the whole point of atomization and to avoid liability is to, you know, compartmentalize this shit. But a similar problem occurred in Puerto Rico. McKinsey was hired by Puerto Rico and has so far been paid 50 million dollars to help the territory generate an extra an exit strategy to manage its crippling debt and get on a path toward growth and development. And I'll just tell you how much debt uh Puerto Rico has right now 74 billion dollars in debt. The reasons for this are are multiple, but basically because it's a US territory, um all of its debt is essentially still backed up by the US government. And the fact that in like the 80s there was an actual like constitutional ruling that said that um US territories can't declare bankruptcy like cities and states can declare bankruptcy but a US territory cannot and as such basically the rules of the US constitution don't really apply to them it's essentially just an imperial colony right
0: yeah and i mean the only th- the only context i've ever even heard the puerto rican debt used in is basically like as a justification for the US government to not help them right i mean and to and not do anything
1: and for, you know, the wealthy, it's like a way to um, to buy government bonds of a U.S.-protected entity, but one which cannot declare bankruptcy, right? So you're essentially just ensuring a continual return on your investment because you know that that debt's not going to get paid off and it's not going to be absolved because they can't, you know, declare bankruptcy. So it's actually a pretty good deal if you're the person holding the debt. And surprise, surprise... McKinsey, you know, I.O., M.I.O., was one of the people also holding that debt when they were hired to um, help them restructure it. In fact, um, McKinsey had a material interest in making sure the island paid off its secured creditors. It was one of them with at least $20 million in Puerto Rican securities. According to the New York Times, the plan McKinsey sold to Puerto Rico was surprisingly generous to the owners of those sales tax bonds. They were offered new bonds that would be valued at either 93% or 56% of what the old ones originally were worth, depending upon the terms of the old bonds. After all is said and done, it looks like McKinsey's hedge fund, through its subsidiaries, will double its original investment in Puerto Rican bonds will the island and its, inhi- and its inhabitants continue to struggle? And what that means is that, you know, um, rather than finding some way to reduce its debt or uh, nullify it, they've found a way to basically increase the debt, I mean, in a sense. And the the way that the Puerto Ricans are paying it off is through higher taxes and fewer services. So like you said, it's just to essentially provide a, a money hole for, you know, wealthy americans but also to yeah continually punish and you know um keep this imperial dominion you know down right
0: yeah i mean that's pretty much what the imf is made for around the world too so the product of the Bretton woods yeah McKinsey must have just gotten all of that from the imf right
1: uh, so the frequency of McKinsey's conflict of interests in its bankruptcy advising reached the point where the firm was forced to settle with the U.S. Department of Justice in 2019, agreeing to pay a paltry – this is – paltry is my word, not, not, not the author's – agreeing to pay $15 million to resolve previous complaints. The settlement is only a fraction of the fees McKinsey has earned, however – not to mention the money its hedge fund has earned through those restructuring plans. Sometimes, this is, this is uh, pretty disgusting, but sometimes the opposite problem occurs, where McKinsey is disinterested when it clearly should be. In 2015, Saudi Arabia hired the company to investigate how the public viewed its economic austerity policies that the government was implementing at the time. McKinsey produced a report that included the names of three individuals who had criticized the regime on Twitter. Shortly thereafter, one of the people named was arrested, while another said that his brothers had been imprisoned and his cell phone hacked. So, you know, McKinsey's just helping out. (laughs) Helping out there. Um, Helping out
0: the crown, I guess.
1: Yeah. The firm professed, quote-unquote horror that its report may have been used for evil not horrified enough apparently to prevent it from attending a huge investment conference in saudi arabia shortly after the saudi government was implicated in the murder and dismemberment of journalist jamal khashoggi in 2018 the saudi government is one of mckenzie's top clients
0: well they do have a lot of money
1: (laughs) Well, no, uh, come on. They're doing economic austerity for the citizens, though. So, Well,
0: <laughs> it's so they can have all that money to pay for, you know, like pay for McKenzie to consult and pay <laughs> well, yeah, for whatever I mean, that ludicrous development that Mohammed bin Salman's trying to get going in the desert.
1: Yeah, it's the same hustle over and over again, though, right? Like it's just a selling them the way of idealizing this, you know, Restructuring a profit towards the top instead of sharing the, the dividends of capitalism with everyone who takes part. This is just a way to push them up and you know, keep the poor down and if anything, give them less and less and less. Yeah. McKinsey will take money from just about anyone. Ukrainian billionaire Renat Akhmatov hired the company to extol the virtues of Viktor Yanukovych to the Ukrainian people and the world. McKenzie did so running forums in New York and Washington about how Yanukovych would modernize and grow Ukraine's economy. Do you remember what happened with Yanukovych in 2014,
0: Jared? I do not. Was he like a steel magnate or something like that?
1: I don't remember how he got rich, but he's a billionaire. He was elected president. And basically when he turned um, to Russia instead of the EU, it prompted like this series of protests in Kiev and Ukraine that essentially brought his government down, he fled to Russia and then the Ukrainian Civil War kind of started as a direct result of that as then the provinces that were, you know, close to Russia and that had predominantly voted for him uh, seceded from the country.
0: Okay. I do vaguely remember that.
1: Yeah, well, uh, Mackenzie had, you know, extolled his virtues, but instead after Yanukovych robbed the country blind and fled to Russia, Mackenzie simply hired itself out to his replacement. (laughs)
0: It went so well the first time.
1: (laughs) But I mean, again, I think that just shows that like what they're actually doing is almost inconsequential. Right. It's just that it doesn't matter
0: to them. They just they're in the business of making money. Yeah. It's just access. Gaining more clients and expanding their reach.
1: Right. So now we get to uh, Buttigieg.
0: When one time Democrat presidential
1: candidate. And McKinsey alum, Pete Buttigieg, was asked about the potential ethical implications of working with some of McKinsey's more disreputable clients. He said, quote, I never worked on a project inconsistent with my values, and if asked to do so, I would have left the firm rather than participate. McKinsey apparently doesn't force its employees to consult for clients they have moral qualms about.
0: All right. So, I guess by definition, then, everyone that Buttigieg <laughs> worked with, he also vouches for.
1: I mean, <laughs> like, what a dumb thing to say, right? I mean, <laughs> like, you know, I might have worked for fucking Hitler, but, you know, I was just cleaning the the halls at Auschwitz. I never actually hurt anyone, you know. Yeah, like, I didn't
0: do anything morally objectionable. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but there seems to have been plenty of consultants at McKinsey who have no problem working for companies and politicians that put money and power above all else. And McKinsey helps them get more money and power. Just look at revelations about the firm's connection to Purdue Pharma, the makers of OxyContin. A recent Massachusetts lawsuit argued that McKinsey was a central player in the state's opioid epidemic, coaching Purdue on how to, quote, turbocharge sales of OxyContin, and how to counter effects of drug enforcement agents to reduce opioid use, unquote. Just normal business stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, the CIA would be proud of that one, right? They're talking about how to get <laughs> people on drugs
0: and keep them hooked on drugs. Totally. The CIA is just like, views <laughs> views McKenzie as like their, I don't know, like a little cousin that's just... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Just making them proud, you know. They're doing to
1: opium what we did to cocaine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> McKinsey was also, according to the lawsuit, quote, part of a team that looked at how to counter the emotional messages from mothers with teenagers that overdosed on the truck. <laughs> <laughs> Just efficiency, man. I mean, like, how are you going to efficiently counter... The, the the sob story of some mom whose kid died of an opium overdose because they were crushing OxyContin and snorting it.
0: Well, I you mean, know, nobody wants to listen to somebody that's
1: overly emotional. <laughs> anyway, they employed Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> so. But he didn't um, do none of that. Yeah, oh yeah, no. <laughs> he just he just fixed bread prices <laughs> in, in Canada. <laughs> okay. McKenzie has refused to admit guilt in its dealings with Purdue and other pharmaceutical companies. But in February of this year, it agreed to a $574 million settlement with the attorneys general of every U S state, except Nevada to fund opioid treatment and recovery programs. And I'm like, what the fuck's wrong with Nevada?
0: Like, <laughs> boy, <laughs> they were on the hook for that for like how many more times than what they did in Puerto Rico.
1: I know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. The firm's contribution to an epidemic that has killed nearly a quarter of a million Americans, however, didn't stop governments around the globe from enlisting in its help in managing the coronavirus pandemic. In the United States alone, state and federal agencies awarded the company more than $100 million in COVID-19 contracts. America's ruling class may express occasional dismay at McKinsey's misdeeds, but at the end of the day, the consulting firm's growing list of crimes and misdemeanors elicits little more than headlines and token gestures. Indeed, as former global management partner Kevin Snyder, who was ousted early this year by the company's senior partners for his apparently overzealous reform efforts, boasted, 2020 was McKinsey's best recruiting year ever.
0: So, you no, know, they they might do some bad stuff sometimes, but they're good. They're good kids.
1: <laughs> All right, so I guess you know why is this bad? Why do we why do we dislike Pete Buttigieg, an otherwise totally normal valedictorian and Rhodes Scholar? You know
0: <laughs> why? I mean, we've been at this for like an hour and forty five minutes now.
1: Well, I guess I'll say like. <laughs> Nicole Ashoff does a really good job of showing and not telling in this. She doesn't, she kind of leaves the obvious conclusion to you, right? But we're podcasters. We have a like contractual obligation to tell, not show. So we have to at least give our hot takes on this. Otherwise we could lose our podcasting (laughs) license.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. We just had a, you know, hour long documentation of how, I don't know what you want like average people the world over have just been completely destroyed by this entity, right. you know,
1: this entity that doesn't time really do anything
0: special.
1: I mean, they're not even like, um, you know, changing anything significantly. It's just a way of perpetuating power among a group of people The children of, you know, Notre Dame professors who are valedictorians and go to Oxford and Harvard. I mean, I think I think Pete Buttigieg is like um, the millennial George H.W. Bush, you know, maybe not from as influential of a family, but in the way that uh, he has cultivated his career around these deep, deep assets of state power and corporate power.
0: You know what I mean? yeah i mean he's just he's just a made man basically
1: well, I also want to point out what we kind of talked about in our little Buddha judge biography about him joining the fucking the naval reserve well working for Mackenzie from two thousand seven to two thousand ten and I think this is why there's these like you know rumors and conspiracy theories about uh, c i a connection there right. Because this person who has no ostensible military experience, connection, or training just can like walk in and get a commissioned officership, with fucking you know nothing in advance of it, seems really fucking suspicious. Except for the fact that he's working for McKinsey, which of course does all this contracting for the Department of Defense.
0: Yeah, I mean you know it's nothing ever changes. It's who you know. It doesn't matter what you know.
1: Right. You know, he's like the latest manifestation of the power elite, this, you know, group of strivers, right? Fucking valedictorian road scholar, Harvard, you know, these people who, you know, sell their own interests, the interests of their class as the interests of everyone else like this the the bullshit about a rising tide lifts all ships right like hey the stock market's going up the economy's expanding isn't that good for you even though you've you know lost your health insurance your paid pension your fucking ability to have a, a career that will last a lifetime yeah
0: the economy's great and Pete Buttigieg is real good at talking and making people trust him
1: and that's why you know like the fact that he's hit this racial equity topic in every speech he's given as secretary of transportation to me the fact that well, he said it in every speech just tells me that he doesn't fucking give a shit about it you know
0: like of course
1: he doesn't care more than the superficial level of seeming to care right
0: that's what it's all about i mean that's that's how obama was so successful too right you know he would he would sell all of these concepts that he supposedly cared about but then you know when there's like a housing crisis he completely sides with not hope and right. change and you know yeah he he accelerates deportations even though he talks about right you know equality and all that it, stuff he and he hires mckinsey to, awful to things her. yeah and he did awful things for like the wealth of the average black family during his stint while being the first black president i mean
1: I mean, and he even has said multiple times, like when, you know, after 2008, common people were calling for, you know, punishment for the bankers who were responsible for the financial crisis, he's, he has said doing so would have like disrupted, you know, the structure and organization of America's, you know, society, right? Like it would have been too impactful. It would have done too much to uh, the way that our hierarchy is organized. And so I couldn't do it. Right. And again, presenting this option as just a force of nature. Right. Like, how could I ever put a banker in jail? They're bankers. My God.
0: Well, what did we say about, like, you know, liberalism as like Joe Biden's ideology too, where just society is something that's kind of to be maybe tweaked around the edges and observed. But under no circumstances are you there to enact fundamental change.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you got to keep your uh, suite of corporate consultants on to make sure that you're you know up to date on the zeitgeist. Yeah. So, yeah, that that's why I guess for me personally, I don't I don't care for Mayor Pete. I think he's probably a completely smooth person. He's probably like if you sat down and talked to him, you probably wouldn't find a lot
0: to quibble over. Well, I mean, that's part of the aesthetic of those people, though. They're not going to be argumentative or anything like right. that. They're going to, they're going to lull you into feeling good while they're picking your pocket somehow mm-hmm. down the line, you know, yeah. I don't know. That's people, people that are really smooth talkers like that always make my skin crawl because I just like instinctively think that they're trying to get one over on me.
1: I think that McKinsey has gotten one over on on society i guess
0: yeah definitely well i mean i would imagine most people have no idea what the mckenzie corporation even is
1: right well you know hopefully some of our uh blue collar schmucks listening to this show now know a little bit and
0: can at least arm themselves with knowledge yes and please don't ever vote for pete Buttigieg.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, I don't know. I, th- I guess this is just kind of – I wanted to share this with you, Jared, and with our listeners because I feel like this article in particular is really well written. And, again, kudos to Nicole Ashoff. And I think it kind of gets at some themes of our show and some thoughts that I I know I've been having lately as I've been kind of looking at the Biden era and, you know, what's going on in the economy and the world today.
0: All good things, man. <laughs>
1: Well, I hope I didn't bum you out, dude. But um.
0: <laughs> it's hard for me to think of like a week that I've been more bummed out than this week. So, yeah, no, this was this was good. You know, getting back on the horse, talking yeah. to my bud, providing a little bit of structure to my week again.
1: I'd like to. Tr- I'm going to try and write our next buoy episode this week, and then hopefully record okay. it next weekend. But we'll see how that goes.
0: All right. Well.
1: But, um, yeah, dude,
0: anything you want to wrap up with Jared? Um, boy, I don't know. I guess I, this is pretty impromptu to begin with, but, uh, Mm -hmm. um, anybody out there, I guess, uh, just try to do what you can, I guess, to get by. Yeah. (laughs) It's as simple as that. Um, things can change pretty rad pretty radically pretty rapidly i guess if you just kind of get unlucky or listen to your body i guess oh there you, you go know. yeah chill when it's time to chill yeah even uh if you can't really for work purposes right um,
1: well you said it at the start of the
0: show you know don't do any labor <laughs> yeah try not to do any physical labor that's right It's really not that great for you. Mm -hmm. you Yeah. There's a reason why
1: like the, you know, most humans died before the age of 45 for most of history or for most of capitalist industrial history, pretty much since the end of hunter gatherer eras.
0: Yeah. I could see it. I don't know, man. Uh, I just remember when I was a kid too, like wondering why people would just like work themselves until their body broke. And I'm kind of hoping that I'm not one of those people now.
1: Well, Th- this podcast will always love you jared
0: <laughs> well i guess i have that to hang as long as head, your, your tongue works <laughs> oh that sounded dirty <laughs> oh believe you me that's it's one of the parts of me that hasn't hasn't faltered much yet <laughs> well good
1: <laughs> all right well let's sign off for about two hours so i think that's pretty good. i would say so